Chapter Four of the Caribou Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Claire M. The Caribou Trail, a chronicle of the gold fields of British Columbia, by Agnes C. Lout. Chapter Four, The Overlanders. When the caribou fever reached the east, the public there had heard neither of the Indian massacres in Oregon, nor that the Sioux were on the warpath in Dakota. Promoters who had never set foot west of Buffalo launched wildcat mining companies and parcel express devices and stages by routes that went up sheer walls and crossed unbridged rivers. To such frauds there could be no certain check, for it took six months to get word in and out of caribou. Eastern papers were full of advertisements of easy routes to the gold diggings. Far-off fields looked green. Far-off gold glittered the brighter for the distance. Caribou became, in popular imagination, a land where nuggets grew on the side of the road and could be picked by the bushel basket. Besides, times were so hard in the East that the majority of the youthful adventurers who were caught by the fever had nothing to lose except their lives. A group of threescore young men from different parts of Canada, from Kingston, Niagara, and Montreal, having noticed advertisements of an easy stage route from St. Paul, set out for the gold diggings in May 1862. Tickets could be purchased in London, England, as well as in Canada, for when these young Canadians reached St. Paul, they found eighteen young men from England, like themselves, diligently searching the whereabouts of the stage route. That was their first inkling that fraudulent practices were being carried on, and that they had been deceived, that there was, in fact, no stage route from St. Paul to Caribou. A few of them turned back, but the majority, by ox-cart and rickety stagecoach, pushed on to the Red River and went up to a point near the boundary of modern Manitoba, where lay the first steamboat to navigate that river, about to start on her maiden trip. On this steamboat, the Little International, Afterwards famous for running into sandbanks and mud-bars, the troops of overlanders took passage, and stowed themselves away wherever they could, some in the cook's galley, and some among the cordwood piled in the engine-room. The Sioux were on a rampage in Minnesota and Dakota, but Alexander Dallas, governor of Rupert's Land for the Hudson's Bay Company, and Monsignor Taché, bishop of St. Boniface, were aboard, and their presence afforded protection. On the way to the vessel, some of the overlanders had narrowly escaped a massacre. The story is told that as they slowly made their way in ox-carts up the river-bank, a band of horsemen swept over the horizon, and the travellers found themselves surrounded by Sioux warriors. The old plainsman who acted as guide bethought him of a ruse. He hoisted a flag of the Hudson's Bay Company, and waved it in the face of the Sioux without speaking. The painted warriors drew together and conferred. The oxen stood complacently chewing the cud. Indians never molested British fur traders. Presently the raiders went off over the horizon as swiftly as they had come, and the gold-seekers drove on, little realizing the fate from which they had been delivered. There had been heavy rains that spring on the prairie, and trees came jouncing down the muddy flood of the Red River. The little international, like a panicky bicycle rider, steered straight for every tree, and hit one with such impact that her smokestack came toppling down. At another place she pushed her nose so deep in the soft mud of the river-bank that it required all the crew and most of the passengers to shove her off. But everybody was jubilant. 
This was the first navigation of the Red River by steam. The Queen's birthday, the 24th of May, was celebrated on board the vessel pottle-deep to the tune of the bagpipes played by the governor's Scottish piper. But the governor's wife was heard to lament to Bishop Taché that the international's menu consisted only of pork and beans alternated with beans and pork, that the service was on tin plates, and that the dining-room chairs were backless benches. The arrival of the steamer at Fort Garry, Winnipeg, was celebrated with great rejoicing. Indians ran along the river bank, firing off rifles in welcome, and opposite the flats, where the fort gate opened, on what is now Main Street, the company's men came out and fired a royal salute. The people bound for Caribou camped on the flats outside Fort Garry. Here was a strange world indeed. Two-wheeled ox-carts made wholly of wood, without iron or bolt, wound up to the fort from St. Paul in processions a mile long, with fat squaws and whole Indian families sitting squat inside the crib-like structure of the cart. Men and boys loped ahead and abreast on sinewy ponies, riding bareback or on homemade saddles. Only a few stores stood along what is now Main Street, which ran northward towards the Selkirk settlement. With the Indians, who were camped everywhere in the woods along the Assiniboine, the overlanders began to barter for carts, oxen, ponies, and dried deer meat or pemmican. An oxen cart cost from forty to fifty dollars. Ponies sold at twenty-five dollars. Pemmican cost sixteen cents a pound, and a pair of Duffel Hudson's Bay blankets cost eight or ten dollars. Instead of blankets, many of the travelers bought the cheaper buffalo robes. These sold as low as a dollar each. John Black, the Presbyterian Apostle of the Red River, preached special sermons on Sunday for the miners. And on a beautiful June afternoon, the overlanders headed towards the setting sun in a procession of almost a hundred ox-carts, and the fort waved them farewell. One wonders whether, as the last ox-cart creaked into the distance, the fur-traders realized that the miner heralded the settler, and that the settler would fence off the hunter's game preserve into farms and cities. A rare glamour lay over the plains that June, not the less rare because hope beckoned the travellers. The unfenced prairie billowed to the horizon a sea of green, diversified by the sky-blue waters of slough and lake, and decked with the hues of gorgeous flowers. The prairie rose, fragrant, tender, elusive, and fragile as the English primrose. The blood-red tiger-lily, the brown windflower with its corn-tassel, the heavy wax cups of the sedgy water-lily, growing where wild duck flackered unafraid. Game was superabundant. Prairie chickens nestled along the single-file trail. Deer bounded from the poplar thickets, and shy coyotes barked all night in the offing. Night in June on the northern prairie is but the shadowy twilight between two long days. The sun sets between nine and ten, and rises between three and four, and the moonlight is clear enough on cloudless nights for campers to see the time on their watches. The trail followed was the old path of the fur trader from fort to fort the plains across to the Rockies. From the Assiniboine the road ran northerly to forts Elise and Carleton, and Pitt and Edmonton. Thomas Micking of Niagara acted as captain, and eight others as lieutenants. A scout preceded the marchers, and at sundown camp was formed in a big triangle, with the carts as a stockade, the animals tethered or hobbled inside. Tents were pitched outside, with six men doing sentry duty all night. At two in the morning a halloo roused camp. An hour was permitted for harnessing and breaking camp, 
and then the carts creaked out in line. They halted at six for breakfast, and marched again at seven. Dinner was at two, supper at six, and tents were seldom pitched before nine at night. On Sunday the procession rested, and someone read divine service. The oxen and ponies foraged for themselves. By limiting camp to five hours, in spite of the slow pace of the oxen, forty to fifty miles a day could be made on a good trail in fair weather. While the scout led the way, the captain and his lieutenants kept a long procession in line, and the travellers for the most part dozed lazily in their carts, dreaming of the fortunes awaiting them in Caribou. Some nights, when the captain permitted a longer halt than usual, and when campfires blazed before the tents, men played the violin and sang and danced. Each man was his own cook. Three or four occupied each tent. In the company was one woman, with two children. She was an Irish woman, but she bore the name of Schubert, from which we may infer that her husband was not an Irishman. Sunday having intervened, the travellers did not reach Portage the Prairie until the fourth day out. Another week passed before they arrived at Fort Elise. Heavy rains came on now, and James Mackay, chief trader at Fort Elise, opened his doors to the gold-seekers. Harness and carts repaired, and more pemmican bought. The travellers crossed the Quapel River in a Hudson's Bay scow, paying toll of fifty cents a cart. From the Quapel westward, the journey grew more arduous. The weather became oppressively hot, and mosquitoes swarmed from the sloughs. At Carleton and at Fort Pitt, the fur traders' string band, husky dogs in wolfish packs, surrounded the camp of the overlanders and stole pemmican from under the tent flaps. From Fort Pitt westward, the trail crossed a rough wooded country, and there were no more scows to take the ox-carts across the rivers. Eleven days of continuous rain had flooded the sloughs into swamps, and in three days as many as eight corduroy bridges had to be built. Two long trees were felled parallel, and light poles were laid across the floating trees. Where the trees swerved to the current, someone would swim out and anchor them with ropes till the hundred carts had passed safely to the other side. It was the 21st of July when the travellers came out on the high banks of the North Saskatchewan, flowing broad and swift, opposite Fort Edmonton. There had been floods, and all the company's rafts had been carried away, but the ox-carts were pulled across by means of a big York boat, and the travellers were welcomed inside the fort. The arrival of the overlanders is remembered at Edmonton by some old-timers, even to this day. Salvos of welcome were fired from the fort cannon by a half-breed shooting his musket into the touch-hole of the big gun. Concerts were given, with bagpipes, concertinas, flutes, drums, and fiddles, in honour of the far travellers. Pemmican bags were replenished from the company's stores. Miners often uttered loud complaints against the charges made by the fur traders for provisions, forgetting what it cost to pack these provisions in by dog-train and canoe. If the Hudson's Bay officials at Fort Garry and Edmonton had withheld their help, the overlanders would have perished before they reached the Rockies. Though the miner did everything to destroy the fur trade, started fires which ravaged the hunter's forest haunts, put up saloons which demoralized the Indians, built wagon roads where aforetime wandered only the shy creatures of the wilds, though the miner heralded the doom of the fur trade, yet with an unvarying courtesy, from Fort Garry to the Rockies, the Hudson's Bay men helped the overlanders. The majority of the travellers now changed oxen and carts for pack-horses and travois, 
contrivances consisting of two poles within which the horses were attached and a rude sledge. A few continued with oxen, and these oxen were to save their lives in the mountains. The farther the overlanders now plunged into the wilderness, the more they were pestered by the husky dogs that roamed in howling hordes round the outskirts of the forts. The story is told of several prospectors of this time, who slept soundly in their tent after a day's exhausting tramp, and awoke to find that their boots, bacon, rope, and clothes had been devoured by the ravenous dogs. They asked the trader's permission to sleep inside the fort. Why? asked the amused trader. Why now, when the huskies have chewed all you own but your instruments? You are locking the stable door after your horse has been stolen. No, answered the prospectors. If those husky dogs last night could devour all our camp kit without disturbing us, tonight they might swallow us before we'd waken. The next pause was at St. Albert, one of Father Lacombe's missions. What surprised the overlanders as they advanced was the amazing fertility of the soil. At Fort Garry, at Pitt, at Edmonton, at St. Albert, at St. Anne, they saw great fields of wheat, barley, and potatoes. Afterwards, many who failed in the mines drifted back to the plains and became farmers. The same thing had happened in California, and was repeated at a later day in the rush to the Klondike. Great seams of coal, too, were seen projecting from the banks of the Saskatchewan. Here, some of the men began washing for gold, and finding yellow specks the size of pinheads in the fine sand, a number of them knocked up cabins for themselves and remained west of Edmonton to try their luck. Later, when these belated overlanders decided to follow on to Caribou, they suffered terrible hardships. The overlanders were to enter the Rockies by the Yellowhead Pass, which had been discovered long ago by Jasper Hawes of the Hudson's Bay Company. This section of their trail is visible to the modern traveller from the windows of a Grand Trunk Pacific Railway train, just as the lower sections of the Caribou Trail in the Fraser Canyon are to be seen from the trains of the Canadian Pacific and the Canadian Northern. First came the fur trader, seeking adventure through these passes, pursuing the little beaver. The miner came next, fevered to delirium, lured by the siren of an elusive yellow goddess. The settler came third, prosaic and plodding, but dauntless, too. And then came the railroad, following the trail which had been beaten hard by the stumbling feet of pioneers. At St. Anne, a guide was engaged to lead the long train of pack-horses through the pass from Jasper House on the east to Yellowhead Lake on the west. Colin Fraser, son of the famous piper for Sir George Simpson of the Hudson's Bay Company, danced a highland fling at the gate of the fort to speed the departing guests and to the skirl of the bagpipes the procession wound away westward, bound for the mountains. Instead of the thirty miles a day which they had made farther east, the travellers were now glad to cover ten miles a day. Fallen trees lay across the trail in impassable ramparts, and floods filled the gullies. Scouts went ahead blazing trees to show the way. Bushwhackers followed, cutting away windfall and throwing logs into sloughs. Horses sank to their withers in seemingly bottomless muskcakes. Footnote. Perhaps the distinction should be made here between the muskeg and the slough. The slough was simply any depression in the ground filled with mud and water. The muskeg was permanent wet ground resting on soft mud, covered over on the top with most deceiving soft green moss, which looked solid 
but which quaked with every step and gave to the slightest weight. Many muskegs west of Edmonton have been formed by beavers damming the natural drainage of a small river for so many centuries that the salt and hummus washed down from the mountains have formed a surface of deep black muck. End footnote. So that the packs had to be cut off and the unlucky broncos pulled out by all hands straining on a rope. Somewhere between the rivers Pembina and McLeod, the travellers were amazed to see what the wise ones in the party thought a volcano, a continuous and self-fed fire burning on the crown of a hill. Science of a later day pronounced this a gas well burning above some subterranean coal seam. At length the overlanders were ascending the banks of the McLeod, whose torrential current warned them of rising ground. Three times in one day, windfall and swamp forced the party to ford the stream for passage on the opposite side. The oxen swam, and the ox-carts floated, and the packs came up the bank dripping. For eleven days in August, every soul of the company, including Mrs. Schubert's babies, travelled wet to the skin. At night, great log-fires were kindled, and the overlanders sat round trying to dry themselves out. Then the trail lifted to the foothills, and on the evening of the 15th of August there pierced through the clouds the snowy, shining, serrated peaks of the Rockies. A cheer broke from the ragged band. Just beyond the shining mountains lay fortune. What cared these Argonauts, who had tramped across the width of the continent, that the lofty mountains raised a sheer wall between them and their treasure? Cheer on cheer rang from the encampment. Men with clothes in tatters pitched caps in air, proud that they had proved themselves the kings of their own fate. It is perhaps well that we have to climb our mountains step by step, else many would turn back. But there were no faint hearts in the camp that night. Even the Irish woman's two little children came out and gazed at what they could not understand. The party now crossed a ravine to the main stream of the Athabasca. It was necessary to camp here for a week. A huge raft was built of pine saplings bound together by withies. To the stern of this was attached a tree, the branch end dipping in the water, as a sweep and rudder to keep the craft to its course. On this the overlanders were ferried across the Athabasca, and so they entered the Yellowhead Pass. End of chapter 4